Thank you again for those beautiful songs. <clears throat> In the spirit of reverence and the words of those songs, let's have a word of prayer before we start this afternoon. Lord, we've heard some beautiful singing with beautiful messages. With you, we can do something. Without you, we can do nothing. We do want you with us. And here we are, Lord, as your potential servants. Mold us, shape us, and fill us, and walk beside us, and teach us what to do and how to do it. And above all, Lord, help us to maintain our relationship with you in such a way that it fills us with your spirit and life, and we invite you to do that in our hearts. Bless this afternoon's topic, and each one is here. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, welcome back. You've had a good lunch. Just so you know that the, the session right after lunch is the, is the preacher's worst nightmare. It's the graveyard shift. Everyone tends to go to sleep, so we'll try to avoid that. In our second session this morning, we talked a little bit about the servant's comparison to a vessel and its formation and its usefulness. But what I want to emphasize is this, that the only value that a, mess, a vessel has is that what's poured into it can be poured out of it without damaging the content of it. That's pretty much what a vessel is useful for. Pick one. Um, God is not interested in pouring His grace just anywhere. He's interested in pouring His grace on people where it's wanted, where it's useful, where it's appreciated. Now when you choose a container to do a job you need to do, what's in it matters. Uh, it matters if there's 2,4-D in the watering can. Uh, if you pick up your coffee cup that you brought in here and it's sweet and you didn't put sugar in it, that means you probably have your neighbor's coffee cup. And probably didn't pick one up off the driveway or somewhere to use this afternoon. You, you got a clean one. Uh, and you would hate to pick up a fire extinguisher with nothing at all in it. It matters what's in it. Um, and what, what it looks like on the outside and what it says it's supposed to do and what its label is doesn't guarantee that it might do its job well. So, I want to make this point this afternoon. There's, there's many ways to serve the Lord and there's practical ways. Somebody cooked lunch today, thank you to them. Somebody organized this event. Somebody cleaned up after us when we were done. We had song leaders and we have people getting this thing together. There's a visible way to do it. But even though that God's service has very many visible factors and practical things that we can do to bless God and serve people, the, the point I want to make is that serving God is a spiritual exercise. Uh, and I want, I want to show you why that matters. Serving God is a spiritual exercise, not just a material one or something we can do with our hands. Um, the very first instance in Scripture that, that I can find where people came and served the Lord was back in Genesis chapter 4. And this is what it says about Cain and Abel, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground as an offering to the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and unto his offering he had not respect. Now, feel free to answer this question, but why was it that two men came and did basically the same thing and one was accepted and one wasn't? To one, God said, well done. The other, he said, I don't like that. 
I can't accept that. What was the difference? Maybe that's a scary one to answer because sometimes we're not quite sure. Um, you know, there's thoughts that maybe he didn't offer blood. Maybe there was a command about that. Although later, it was commanded that they bring the first fruits of the ground. That was also part of their commanded offering system, which was not yet in place here. But in 1 John 3.12, it says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. And could it be that that God looked beyond the offering and saw the life, and God saw beyond the sheep and beyond the vegetables, and He saw the content of each heart and whatever it was that made them bring this offering there. And based on that, God accepted one and did not accept the other. Cain was rejected, perhaps because there was something wrong on the inside of Cain. See, we're called to serve, yes, and want to obey that, yes, but... How it's done matters to God. So there's a spiritual side of a, of a practical obedience here that made a big difference. Um, we could use another example. When Jesus sat near the treasury watching people bring their offerings to the temple, and there was no thing saying there how much an offering had to be, what was the minimum or whatever. And Jesus watched the rich men come in, their bags of coins. And Jesus watched the widow come in with her, her, her two cents and put that in the offering. And Jesus said, this widow gave more than all the rest. And why then was the widow held up as an example and the wealthy scorned in the temple? They both did the same thing. They both gave uh, out of their ability. The reason is that service to God is a spiritual exercise. And the heart of contentment and joy and sacrifice and giving is worth more than quantity. And God measures that. You have Barnabas and Ananias. In the one chapter in Acts, it says that Barnabas came, sold a possession, gave the money. The next chapter, you see Ananias doing the same thing, although he didn't give all of it. What made the big difference? God saw the sincerity of, of Barnabas' heart, and God saw the insincerity and hypocrisy of Ananias' heart. That made the difference. The quantity wasn't the problem, it was the heart behind it. The Pharisees and the publicans stood in the temple. One on his high place thanking God for all that he was not. And this one in the corner, the publican, asking mercy for all that he was. Why was one justified and the other was not? Well, God could see well past their prayers and into their heart. And to serving God always includes more than meets the eye. There's a visible part. God calls us to do physical things and material things. You might work in an orphanage. You might take a short-term mission trip. You might teach a Sunday school class. You might serve in practical ways, invisible ways. But then there's that invisible part that it's always an interaction between my spirit and God's spirit in the midst of what's being done and how He views that part of the relationship. My inner life and how it affects what I'm doing. This is very important to understand all we do. For a school teacher we're on work projects, if we're whatever it is, but there's always a spiritual dynamic in the material service we are called to accomplish. It doesn't meet the eye, but it does leave a flavor. It leaves a smell. It leaves an impression behind it. Paul said that we give the savor of life unto life. And I think this dynamic has to be firmly in place in order for this to happen. 
There's a couple of concerns we have with a life of service. And I guess the servant's first concern is always, does, does God approve of this? Whatever we're about, whatever we do, that's our first concern. It's not about what people see, what people think, what they will think of what I've just done. Does God approve and does He accept it? That's the first concern we must have. Whether we're giving an offering or singing at the nursing home or helping a neighbor or helping with the dishes. But there's many ways we serve God by serving others and, and this is what God is concerned about. This is what we're concerned about. And we see in Scripture that God does not measure an action by its size, by its impressiveness, but by its attitude and the motive behind it. There's many great things in Scripture that that God did not value, didn't draw His attention. And there are many small things that were approved because of what they meant and why they were done. And God's concerned about that. So what then does God look for? And what is the attitude behind the action that qualifies it in His sight? I'd like to mention a few this afternoon because we're concerned about acceptably serving God. There's a verse here in Hebrews 12.28. It's important for this, this part. Hebrews 12.28 says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And if you can't do it with acceptance and acceptably with godly fear, we may as well not try at all, right? Um, we must do it acceptably and with reverence. And how do we do that? How is that done according to this verse? In the Old Testament, they had a, a rule that when you brought a meat offering, it was supposed to be offered with salt. So I don't know if they ever tried to offer a meat offering without it, but the meat and the salt on top. And somehow the salt on the meat was part of an acceptable offering to God. Every, every offering was salted with salt, I think Jesus said. In the New Testament, every act is sanctified by the grace upon it, according to this verse. Have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably and reverently with godly fear. So as we volunteer or encourage or sing or lead out or whatever you brethren do in your life, let us take this verse along to do it. Now what is grace? It's, it's the acceptable seasoning. We see it in this verse. It's the God-influencing greeting that makes it work and makes it acceptable and, and pleasant in His sight. According to the description I read, it says that it is especially the divine influence on the heart and its reflection in the life. So we have God's grace in my heart affecting the inner core of my being, reflecting in what comes out of my mouth and actions and words and, and ways of expressing myself. And that's grace. Grace is both practical and it is visible. If you're asked to help at your house and you're storming around the kitchen and slamming doors, I will guarantee you there is grace lacking there. If you're volunteer to teach but you spend your time moping and frustrated and harsh and cutting, there is some lack of grace in that service that could be better than it is. Grace is also joy. It's liberality. It's, it's uh, generosity. Grace is, is pleasure in what we're doing and, and thanksgiving in what we're doing. Now, how do I get that? If that is one thing that approves my actions and service before God, how does it come? Well, I think the only way God's grace comes is through spending time in His presence and His Word and in prayer. It comes through a cheerful obedience to what I know. It comes when the Spirit of grace is in control of my life and then He fills my life with grace. 
Grace is always an influence of His. never comes from anywhere else. And whatever I do under that influence is a blessing and is acceptable before God. Whatever I do under the influence of the grace of the Lord is acceptable before Him. And when the influence of Christ is there on my life and motives and service, um, it's infused with the sweetness of heaven. And that's the way we do what we do. And that's what renders it acceptable to God. Every act with that is a blessing. And there are more things. One thing God is concerned about, and we learn this great lesson from 1 Corinthians 13. The great lesson there is that even great personal sacrifice without love is not acceptable with God. It can't atone for lovelessness. You can have great speaking ability, the gift of prophecy and discernment, the gift of knowledge and faith. You can have the gift of singing. You can sacrifice your own body. You can give all your goods to feed the poor. And all of that without love is simply a, a clanging noise and a, a, uh, a useless energy. Great acts without love are counted as nothing. And it doesn't take much of an act out of love that God counts as valuable. Jesus said, if you even give a cup of cold water because you're a disciple, that's counted. And there's many ways to do that, but um, if, if, we, if we stop doing things because we have to and do them because we love God and love God's people, that makes a big difference in what we do for Him. Love makes it acceptable to God. God is concerned about the humility in it. <clears throat> I already cited this verse, but whosoever should... Give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple. Verily I say unto you, shall no wise lose his reward. Now if you look at Jesus' life and his acceptable service, there was humility written all over it. Uh, humility kneels down to talk to children. Uh, humility waits on people that aren't as fast as you. Uh, in Jesus' life, humility touched lepers and was patient with people who didn't understand and, and washed fishermen's feet. Humility is at home doing dirty work. Humility is, is giving others a boost, maybe at the expense of myself. And humility makes service acceptable to God, whatever is done out of that attitude. John, Jesus said this, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as a younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. See, in their age, a king might ride by, and from his altitude and from his, his position of elevated distance from the people, throw out uh, gold coins for his entertainment and watch them scramble in the dust for his offerings. And... Jesus said, people look at a king like that and call him a benefactor. Look what he gave me. He gave me, a, gave me a gold coin. I got it. Jesus said, it's not like that in the kingdom. But those that are greatest, let him be the servant. Humility makes it acceptable. The sacrifice of it makes it acceptable to God. I already talked about Jesus' example of the widow with two cents. You know, there's, there are some wealthy philanthropists. Oy, I don't know if there's ever been people as wealthy as are wealthy today. Maybe so in the past. But, but these very wealthy people are capable of giving very much cash 
around. I was reading yesterday about about Mark Zuckerberg. He was the founder of Facebook, right? Um, and he has done a lot to help the poor and eradicate disease and promote education. But he said he is willing to donate in his lifetime, that means he might wait till soon before he dies, but in his lifetime, donate 99% of his shares in Facebook, which comes up to a value of about $45 billion. Keep one for himself. $99 billion. That sounds like a staggering sum. And it is. I can't imagine. But Mark Zuckerberg, for every day of his life, since the day he was born, has made about $4 million a day up till now. Can you imagine that? I think in 2013, he made about $1.27 million an hour. About $21,000 a minute. Uh, he might could afford $45 billion, right? What does God think of that? Bill Gates gave over $50 billion and is very active in trying to eradicate polio. They're not too far from maybe doing that. How does he qualify that? I don't think he looks at that and says, I wish they wouldn't have done it. I think some of these men have a genuine compassion and want to do good things for other people. And, and sometimes we grapple with when ungodly people do good things. How does that, share, how does that shape up? How do, you, how do you view that? I think God gave His image to all of His creation and some of that is just acting out of that same image of God that's been placed on their life. But I do guarantee you that they're not suffering any by giving $45 billion. They're not hurting. They're not out of supper tonight. They're not out of a beach home probably either. So uh, it's not like they gave till it hurt quite. Although they gave a lot. But Jesus saw this widow and says, now, this, this, these two cents, they had almost no impact on the well-being of the temple. They would pay almost nothing in the salary of a priest. But Jesus said the attitude the sacrifice, the willingness, the heart behind it makes it acceptable to God. You know, I was on the mission field for a while. Some of you will be too. And I learned something that it's one thing to be generous with mission money, but what about mine? It's one thing to go out and hand out tracts that the mission fund bought. What about going and buying them myself? It's one thing to go on an expense-paid mission trip what about paying for it yourself? Um, are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom? That was what made Jesus approve this widow. The faithfulness of it. When God measures the acceptability of an act, the faithfulness of it means a lot. Who is a faithful and wise servant? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh shall find so doing. Basically, the thing that he gave you to do, you're going to keep on doing it until he comes and relieves you of that task or points her to something else, but you're faithful in what you're called to do. And I don't know if you struggle with this. I know I have, but when we're given a task to do, we have an immediate burst of enthusiasm and it's a new job, it's a new role, a new responsibility. But check back in after five years, ten years. Are you uh, just as happy and just as committed? Jesus doesn't require... Greatness. He simply requires faithfulness. And that's what makes the act acceptable. The motivation behind it. I think it's very obvious in Scripture that the service to God is acceptable or not based on the motivation behind it. Uh, the, the Pharisees prayed. And they prayed more than I pray. I'm, probably, I'm pretty sure of that. They, 
stood in the corners and they did their things and they fasted more than I fast. They gave their tithes probably more calculatedly and exactly than, than probably I am, have done. As so they're very intent on doing it right. But Jesus said, I can't accept that. As exact as you were in obeying the commands of God, I can't accept it because your goal is not to please God, it's something to get attention from other people. The service that no one knows but God, the quiet giving and the solitary praying and the acts of service without your name attached. See, the God who sees in secret can reward you openly. So don't let your service be wasted through, through the wrong motivation. If you're going to do it, do it for the right reason and let God see it in Him alone. So all of these things are, are like an expression of God's grace upon our service. It's like salt on the offering. It renders what we do acceptable and accept, uh, gratifying to God. And I don't know of a better thing than to do what we do for Him and have Him just say, I like that. I approve of that. I accept that. That's our primary concern. When we serve, that's our primary concern. That our Father who sees in secret is accepting of our service. But Jesus shared another reason. I'd like to share this one with you too. In Matthew 5.16, it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, how does this square with what the Pharisees did? They let their, their works be seen before men, didn't they? But they let their good works shine so that people could see them and glorify them. Here it says, let your light shine so that God, men may glorify God. There's a triangle here. There's me living in obedience and serving God and, and showing kindness and generosity and, and giving an answer that turns away wrath and, and obeying the principles of godliness in open ways. I do it for the Lord, and other people see it. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to see the Lord in what I do. Is this triangle that's supposed to be completed in this, this example. So much of our service is simply living out a life of obedience. But everything we do leaves a flavor behind it. Even though we do it for the benefit of men, it, it has another purpose. There's an unintended impression. There's a flavor. There's vibes there. And based on this verse, whatever service I accomplish for God or men, especially for men, it's effective if it reminds people of Christ and it's ineffective if it doesn't. Is that, is that clear English? Um, you see, as, as a believer, we are called to not only be a servant, but an ambassador. So here we are in this world, serving in many kinds of ways in many situations. And the good works that people see are supposed to remind them of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Christian Aid Ministries does things like tear out sheetrock and clean up flood damage and, and go to places where there's been natural disasters and build things and help people that way. But they have a standard. They have a dress code. They have a standard of behavior. And they have certain things they expect from people that come and serve there. And there's a reason for that because it doesn't matter your dress code. You can get the sheetrock ripped out just as well. It doesn't matter if you say if you swear on the job. It doesn't matter if you, if you, uh, whatever attitude you have toward what you're doing. As long as the work gets done, that gets done, right? But the concern is that the sheetrock, the wet sheetrock, is an important thing to get ripped out. 
the more important thing is to leave behind us when we leave an impression of the Lord Jesus Christ so this triangular verse can be accomplished. We serve the Lord by serving you and leave behind us a recognition and a flavor of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may glorify your Father which is in heaven. I was uh, single and a work group came down to work for a couple of days up in Santa Rosita. And I went along up there with them and I learned to know a couple of them fairly well. These were young married men, older than I was at that time. And they were fixing the clinic. And I don't know when I've seen a rowdier group of people than those four or six men. They left their wives behind down in the next outpost back. And they were up there by themselves. And they got the work done. I chose to sleep in the van that night. They were sleeping in the... I woke up around 11 or 12 o'clock and there was hooting and yelling and chasing around the property. And they were tackling somebody to shave his legs. That was what they were trying to do at midnight. One of their buddies up there. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the neighbors remember that 20 years later. But, but Christ is not what they remember from that night. They got a different impression, I think. And these are good guys. They just had a hilarious moment. Um, you see, everywhere I go, there's a visible effect and a spiritual effect. It doesn't matter if I build houses, if I rip out drywall, if I clean floods or pass out tracks. But if my passing does nothing to make Christ look good, I have failed in my primary purpose. It's ineffective. It's especially true in spiritual work, in witness work, in, in, in the attempt to go and reach the world for Christ. This is part of our work as we are ambassadors. As a witness, as you go out and meet people and maybe sing in the nursing home or pass out tracks or go on a mission trip or become involved in a longer-term commitment somewhere, and I would recommend that, an effective witness will probably leave one of two things behind it. It will either leave a repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus and a brokenness and faith in other people. Or it will lead a hardness and rejection of Christ because they saw Him and chose to reject Him. They didn't want Him. One of those two things it should leave too often are coming and going simply leave indifference. They don't know. They don't care. They don't bother. They don't see. And sometimes I wonder why it's that way. But but here's a question. If people hear my message and reject it, are they rejecting me or are they rejecting Christ? Which one? See, the more carnal and unchristlike I am, the greater the chance they never saw Jesus in my witness at all. Just me. The more Christ-like, the more Spirit-filled, probably the more serious the decision I'll have to make because of the influence that, that stays behind. True witness reveals the true nature of Christ. Now too often, a rejection is not a rejection of Christ, but a rejection of our culture, our quirks, our personalities, our weaknesses. I read a bumper sticker that says it pretty well. I was down here in Gladys, I read it. I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And if that's what people see when we leave, we have failed in our purpose in our service to Him. We're called to be ambassadors and represent His kingdom. Let's go to 2 Corinthians a little bit. Chapter 4. 
verse 1. I'm going to read from 1 to 7. I'm going to end up here with the verse we quoted in the last one. Therefore, seeing we have received this ministry, this service, this, this call to serve the Master, as we have received mercy, we faint not. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, and here's the verse, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now we could bring a lot out of this passage, but if you go back to the one before it, it talks about Moses coming back to the people, bringing with him something he received in God's presence. He went there and came back with a glowing face. This evidence, this, this, this godly glow in his features. And they said, please cover that up. So he covered his face to speak to them so they wouldn't be afraid of him. And then Paul goes on to write, the people of Israel, it's almost like this veil has gone onto their hearts and they just cannot see the gospel of Christ. And then in verse 4 it says that the God of this world blinds them so they can't see the gospel of Christ, understand it. So, uh, here's a question. This barrier, this blockage of the glory of Christ that needs to rest upon us and be transmitted to them as we serve the Lord in this world, does He convince them through human agency or in spite of it, around it, instead of it? And I would hasten to say that there are cases when people come to Christ with no contact with the Christian, simply through a stray track, through an inner nudging or something. But that's not normally how it's accomplished. Usually it's done through contact with someone, through, um, through working in their area or friendship with them. But this barrier, the, the barrier that blocks the light of Christ from the heart of the unbeliever, how is this handled? We expect to find it in the life of an unbeliever. And, and Paul said in this passage we read how he handles it. He said this, I take care that the content of my vessel be what it should. If you read verse 2 and 3 carefully, that's what it, what it means. It says he cleaned up his inner life, renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness. He wants to make sure there's nothing in this content of my vessel that would adulterate and make impure the message that flows in and out and comes from my ministry. This, this has to be pure so that what comes out can be pure. He's concerned about that. Then it says he commends himself to every man's conscience. Um, we, we tend to try to persuade people with logic. And so we get into an argument with a, a Jehovah's Witness or an atheist or a Buddhist. We try to, to make them see it our way and to, to bring them to a place where they have no arguments left and then we've won, right? And then they walk away and we walk away and they stay the same and you stay the same. Uh, but I believe that more people come to Christ through the working of conscience 
than through the working of logic. Although we need to share truth, we need to be sure on our issues, but, but more people come through the work of conscience. And I believe there's nothing that pricks quite like a pure conscience and a pure life. So as we live in this world, and you young people have a beautiful ability here, when among all the filth and the debauchery of our culture, if you live a life that's pure and upright, that's one of the most beautiful drawing factors you can offer. And uh, they see that. The, the biggest hindrance, I believe, to the Gospel is when the, the, the veil is put across our light. There's uncrucified flesh. There is unbroken will. There is unholiness in our life. And this happens, and it's sad to see it. There was a missionary one time that wanted to go and serve, and he tried to serve in sacrificial ways, but he had an anger problem. And he would yell at nationals, and he would be upset easily about this and that. And long after he left, the damage was done. And what he came to do, he brought something different. And, and somehow the people could not see the glory of Christ through the, the, the uncrucified area there. And there's other people we all struggle with something probably. There's a young man that told me he'd like to serve somewhere sometime. And he was an energetic person. He was very able, able to uh, speak well and uh, knowledgeable. And he, he wanted to go and serve. But, but I remember the anger problem and the, the moral struggles and the broken relationships. And I was afraid that he could go into all the world and hand out tracts and preach the Gospel and, and do the work of a missionary. But with this, this black veil of uncrucified flesh and that was all the flavor he would leave behind him when he left. It doesn't matter the words we say, but we can quickly smother it through the, 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 the contradiction with our, with our own heart. So whatever we do for the king must be done in the attitude of verse 7. It says it well. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Our service must be done this way if it would transmit the life of Christ. Now, I'd like to suggest this afternoon that the very same things that make our service acceptable to God probably helps make our service effective among other people. The same thing that makes it acceptable here makes it effective here. It's important to remember that. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. We have treasure earth and vessels. And I do believe, and you can correct me later if you think I'm off base on this, but what grows out of our inner spiritual life is one of the ways that God speaks to people and, and draws them to Himself. I believe that to be true. And if you doubt that, look at the alternatives. Paul said this, Our Gospel came to you in power, not in word. Is it possible that the Gospel and the, the power and the Gospel be separated? Now, how effective would it be if you as a youth group would decide we were going to save the nation, we are going to get a good gospel tract printed up, and we are going to mail it to every one of the 330 million people in the United States of America. With that, and that's going to be the answer. We're going to get that done that way. Our church in Floyd is interested in supporting a work in Columbia. Uh, it's already started, but the person there has a connection to our congregation and wondered if we would step in and help with that work. Now, it's expensive to send missionaries down there. What would happen if we just mass mail a, 
Bible correspondence course to everyone around there, and we'll just we'll just do it from here. We'll send that and let that be our outreach. Would that be effective? Or better yet, there are so many unemployed Colombians down there. In fact, better yet, unemployed Venezuelans that are pouring across the Colombian border right now. Let's spend the money that we would have used in sending expensive missionaries down there and let's hire them. Let's hire them to go around reading the Bible to people. They can visit homes. They know the language. They're going to sit down and read verses. We'll tell them what to read. They're going to read the verse and the people are going to hear the gospel. And that's how we're going to get our work done. Would that be effective? doesn't matter who they are. Just that they're willing to uh, work eight hours a day reading Scripture to people and we'll pay them for it. And that'll be our outreach effort. Now, why would, the, would, that, would that work or not? Why not? Because though the Word is there, the, the power isn't in it. Where does the power come from? It comes through the, the life and submission of the believer. And that's where the power comes, of Christ comes in and, and works through prayer and through, through separation unto God. I'm going to be staying at Gabriel's this afternoon, this evening. If I remember right, out in front of his house, there is a big field out there. I don't mind fields, I like woods. And so back behind his house is a big woods. And if I would just think, let's, let's just transform the field. There's nothing out there, it's barren. Back here there's so many nice trees. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to pick up sticks of the tree I think looks nice. I'm going to compare the bark, that looks good. So get a bunch of these sticks and go out in the field and start shoving them in the ground in a nice row. And won't Gabriel be surprised next summer when he goes out and has to mow around all those new trees out there? They're going to be sprouting up and we're going to cover that thing with new growth and well, that wouldn't work either, would it? And there's a reason it wouldn't work. It's a direct violation of the law of biogenesis. And that law simply states that life can only come from life. Uh, you cannot have life unless there's life previously. You can look at your, you have the chicken and the egg expression. Which came first? Well, whichever came first, there was life before that happened. You get back to the very last one, there was a life that gave it life. And so life can only come from life. I guess evolutionists feel that at least one time in all of the earth's history, uh, the law of biogenesis was violated and something started somewhere. Spiritual life is the same way. And in our service, whatever it is, we need to realize that spiritual life springs from spiritual life. We're almost at spring. One reason I enjoy spring is because of flowers everywhere. Popping up. Apple trees. Peach trees. Did you know, and you've studied biology, you do know, that the only biological reason for a flower to exist is so that a seed can exist. And so you have the stamen and the anther and there's a pollen transfer and then the pollen tube that grows way down inside there and, and fertilizes the ovules and the seed begins to grow in that flower. And the moment that happens, the petals fall off and this thing starts to swell and starts growing a fruit around the seed. Um, And the seed grows. But around the seed grows a fruit. And the only biological reason for a fruit to grow is for seed dispersal. Now, seeds come in many forms and many shapes. They can be in the apple that you ate on the deer stand and threw away the core. 
Maybe the seed will sprout. There's a seed in there. The seeds are in the pokeberries that the birds eat and scatter seeds all over the place and they grow. The seeds are in the cockleburs and Spanish needles that stick on your clothes and you walk through the field and you, you pick them off and drop them and, and all those things have life inside them that might grow wherever they land. Now why did God do that? There's a creation principle there. The law of biogenesis is in that. And Genesis 1.12 said, And the earth brought forth fruit, or grass, and the herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And everything that has life either reproduces or dies out. It has the power to recreate itself. And this is so important to the propagation of every race on earth that every female mammal at the, soon after conception has all the egg cells it'll ever use in all its life because reproducing the race is so important. Now Jesus said, we're like a branch and He's like the vine. That's in John 15. So we're connected to the vine and we have life flowing into the branch. And out of that relationship, something happens. Out of that relationship, and this is the will of God, and He says it here in John 15, 16, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. And that your fruit should remain. There's a place for maturing and taking time and developing. And, but sooner or later, God looks at you and says, I need fruit on this branch. This is what it's here for. I want fruit on this branch. And the fruit that you bear is simply an evidence of the truth of the life that's in you. If you're connected and the life is flowing, there will be fruit and nothing can keep it off. And if he, Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the love and the forgiving and all these things. It's the result of God's Spirit dwelling in your spirit. Now, we said that verse. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What is that? The treasure in earthen vessels is the grace of the life. It's the Spirit of the Lord. It's the, it's the knowledge of God. And that's inside here. Other people cannot see that. There's no label out here that says what's in it. There's nothing that says... 2%. It doesn't say green beans. It doesn't say half and half. It's just, it's just a vessel. And this treasure is not brought out at will like you pick milk from the fridge. You don't open it and take it out and put it back and close the door. That's not how this, this inner treasure is, is revealed. But the treasure within you must grow out. You don't open it and pick it out. It grows out. And the only way the treasure in you is coming out is if it grows out through the experiences of your life. And this can grow out in many ways, in any circumstances. And the beautiful thing is this, that the treasure in your vessel is also in your vessel, and the treasure in your vessel is in your vessel. And so when people observe your life, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, the same fruit that they see here, they can see over here and back there and in the store, they see the mom with the two little children and well, how they act when they're fussy. And on the job, they can see the, the worker when things haven't gone right. And they, they see what you watch and hear what you listen to and talk about. And if, if they're thinking, they connect the dots. Same thing. The same attitude. The same treasure being born out in people's life. I think we're watched people. I think probably people talk about us and wonder about us and ask questions about us 
And we never find out about it. But I want to remind you of this, that in any culture, godliness is such a unique fruit. People need to see it. People need to experience it. It's not just a Mennonite culture. It's a godliness and a way of living that, that brings attention to Him. It's not just the outward appearance and the, 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 the habits and the culture, but it is a, a heavenly influence upon our life. And I know we do have strange things that we could think twice about and question, but we don't all have to raise peas and we don't all have to eat popcorn on Sunday afternoons. We don't all have to have big Sunday dinners. That's cultural. But the, the, the spiritual evidences that are born out in everyday life need to be there. And I want to make this connection yet. Just as in the natural world, in the spiritual world, I believe that in every, every fruit that's born comes out with it a seed inside. In the same way, the fruit is simply seed dispersal. And whatever it takes to bring new life and to call the attention to the one that can give life goes out as this grows out through our life. It carries with it the potential to soften the heart and plant the seed and make people ask questions and make them come to the source that we have. And that's one reason it's meant to be there. There's many ways this could be borne out. There's one example I so appreciated in Guatemala. This older missionary man who came without any Spanish at all and he was there to serve for a short time. Didn't even take time to learn Spanish. But every day, he would be out in the street and farmers would be going by and he would shake their hands and he would uh, give them tracts and loan them books and say good morning and smile at them. Same way in the evening. He had neighbor children in to play dominoes and he just loved people. He loved people. The very first Sunday, he took a carload of people to church. And the second Sunday, he took a van load of people to church. And the third Sunday, he had to borrow a bigger van because the first one wasn't big enough to haul all the people to church that wanted to go to church. And by the end of his three months, the neighbor family was born again and some were in instruction class. And he went home and left that behind. And we look at that and say, what in the world? How can he accomplish in three months what some of us wouldn't get done in a couple of years? I can't explain it all, but, but love is a fruit of the Spirit. And wherever love goes, a seed goes with it and can plant that and it can turn into something permanent somebody else's life. There's many ways to reach the world of the Gospel. There are CDs and internet and paper and radio waves. And we need to do that. But you know, the written Word of God is powerful. But the Word of God is translated into everyday life is both practical and attractive and compelling. And that's what we must be about. So we are called to be servants of God. And there's only one ingredient that empowers the acceptable, effective service. And that is the grace and presence of God upon and in our life. And unless a servant goes out with this in his heart, uh, he will really have no impact on the kingdom of heaven. He can rip out sheetrock. He can uh, build houses. He can do many things. But this is what it takes to allow people to see the King that we serve. God bless you this afternoon.